some yellow cards, a couple issued to both clubs. But other than that, a back and forth championship final so far as we are just one minute into this second half of this championship final. If it stays at nil-nil, or even if both teams score 1-1, as Croatia has a chance in the box now, but Paul back in, shot, scores! Oscar Cordon! This game is over from Warrior Field in Waterloo, Ontario, the home of the University of Waterloo Warriors. The final whistle has been blown, and Toronto, Croatia are your 2015 Canadian Soccer League First Division champions. Turned over though, another chance. Whiteman the delivery, and it's a cracking strike from the Vaughn striker, and he equalizes here in the 39th minute. The leading scorer, Jarek Whiteman, adds to his tally, and that's number 18, and equalizes this match. It's one all. Amato. Up. Can Whiteman counter? He can. Whiteman, he wins the ball. He's on a breakaway here. The strike! Into the corner it goes, and the Azzurri's leading scorer gets the equalizer once again. And it's all tied up 2-2 two to two in the 57th minute. Jarek Whiteman with number 19 on the season and his second of the match. The Chiara now with the delivery. Back post. The header back in. Yazuri with a chance. It's a box and in the back of it. And it's number three for Jarek Whiteman. The hat trick converted. 3-2 in the 60th minute. You're watching and listening to Mamma Mia. This is Fire Talk Footy Edition with Nicholas Fiore. Welcome back, everybody, to episode number 43 and Footy Edition number six of Mamma Mia. This is Fire Talk. I'm Nicholas Fiore, the host of the show, and joining me is the founder of TFC Republic, John Molinaro. John, thanks for uh, coming on. I appreciate it. Oh, no problem. Anytime. Um, absolutely. And obviously, you've had so many past experiences in the in the media world um i just want to touch upon though first tfc republic as you can see behind me you know the diana matheson retirement story for the canadian women's national team and obviously tfc finally getting their first win uh in in a lot in a while right on the after the firing of chris armas uh the former head coach of tfc what is you know if people don't know tfc republic you've you founded it, you know, you write articles, but I'd like you, you to explain it because I, of course, know, but for everyone else watching, of course. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I would, I guess I would just, just describe it as a website, a uh, paid website dedicated to in-depth analysis and coverage of all things Toronto FC plus, you know, Canadian soccer in general, whether it's the, you know, the Canadian men's and women's teams or the Canadian Premier League, um, you know, not so much sort of straight news reporting, but more kind of just analysis, opinions, uh, long-form features, stuff that you wouldn't necessarily find at other uh, media outlets. So it's kind of taking a different approach to covering TFC and Canadian soccer. Absolutely. Um, you've, you've started, you know, you started a while ago in, in the media landscape with uh, the Sun Media as an online editor, journalist um, from 99 to 02, then CBC, and you were a journalist for nine years with the CBC uh, and then Sportsnet, um, obviously, where a lot of my viewers and listeners are, you know, tune in to, for their stuff, either TSN or Sportsnet, of course. You're there seven years. 
And then the CPL, the Canadian Premier League, as you can see the scarf behind me, I've had a few CPL players on the show so far, um, you know, through your experiences so far. What what for you has been the, the most, um, I guess, thriving experience out, out of those, I guess, four main ones? I'm sure you've done a little side stuff here and there, but those four main ones that you really flourished and and maybe came out of the shell, sort of say, and say, all right, like, I want to do this for basically the rest of my life. Well, they all had sort of elements of that. I mean, you know, this working at the sun was a great experience, because that was my first job out of journalism school. So I got to really sort of get my feet and wet and, you know, learn about the business and, you know, was mentored by some pretty great people there. The CBC was cool in that, you know, I kind of oversaw you know, the website's coverage of major tournaments, whether it was like World Cups or Euros. And, you know, the best experience in my professional career was was actually being sent to South Africa to cover, you know, the 2010 World Cup. And I was lucky enough to follow, you know, Spain's run through the knockout stages all the way to the final to winning it. So, you know, that was obviously a, a career highlight and a fantastic experience. And with Sportsnet, I mean, you know, they essentially poached me from, from CBC because they wanted me to, um, you know, be their full-time soccer reporter and chief soccer reporter. And so that was something I was always kind of striving to do, you know, when I, when I began my journalism career. So, you know, that was pretty special because so few people in this country actually make a living as, you know, full-time soccer reporters or media members. So to be one of the few was, was pretty inspiring. And then, you know, the CPL was interesting, even though I wasn't there all that long because it's a new upstart league and, you know, it's getting on the ground floor of something that's, um, you know, was badly needed in this country. So they all sort of had elements of, you know, being yeah. important yeah. in different parts. For sure. For sure. You went to school at uh, York and Sheridan here in, in, within the GTA. Did those schools, you know, because some people I, I, you know, I've noticed, I know for me, I went to Humber College for media foundations and radio broadcasting, and it's propelled me to you know, do what I'm doing now at, at, at the level that I'm at, obviously I want to get to, you know, you one day or, you know, so many more others one day, right. Levels anyways. But did those schools help you to get to where you are now you think and, and, and find that foundation? I think so. I mean, you know, when I was at York, I was there for four years. And so, you know, I think it sort of provided me a good, as you said, foundation, just to, to just sort of changing my worldview you know, being around people who I, you know, I grew up in, in Burlington, which is, you know, quite different from, from York and Northern Toronto. And so just being around, you know, people who I wouldn't necessarily have grown up with in Burlington, uh, you know, was, you know, a pretty cool experience. And it's, as I said, it sort of broadened my horizons and changed my worldview and outlook a little bit. And, you know, Sheridan was a great experience because we really hit the ground running with their journalism sort of program, right? Um, you really sort of, there was a lot to learn in a short period of time and you were dealing with, you know, professionals who were actually in the business who were teaching this. So that was for me, such a great experience. And so I think they both had an element of, you know, helping me get to where I am today. There's no question about it. Absolutely. Um, your past jobs, obviously, usually would lead to some connections, right? And form bridges and form relationships. And obviously, you know, you've done that through the years. It's a pretty wide question and a cliche question, I guess, but how truly important is making these connections to then open up lanes and avenues for you in the broadcasting industry? Well, I, I would suggest they're pretty important. I mean, um, 
you know, I've been lucky enough in that, you know, everywhere I've been, I've, I've formed good sort of relationships with people. Um, so that when I did move on, there was never any sort of bitterness on my part or on their part. And I've, you know, kept in touch with a lot of them. And then sometimes it's led to, to other gigs or other jobs. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very small community when you really think about it. Um, you know, talking about Canadian journalism and media and, you know, people talk to each other. And if you have like a bad experience at one place and you're, you know, you're the root problem, then people are going to hear about it. And that might sort of lead to less opportunities. So, you know, I've always tried to, you know, conduct myself as professionally and as, as straightforward as I can. And I think people have appreciated that and it's helped me build up a, you know, a network of contacts that have led to other things. So, I would, you know, I would suggest that's vitally important. Absolutely. Um, couldn't agree with you more. You know, you're with Sportsnet after leaving the CBC for nine years and you go to Sportsnet for seven years after 2011 to 2019. Could you, is it safe to say that Sportsnet really, like that was in a way kind of the dream job and, and, and you know, it was tough kind of leaving when it was time? Yeah, I mean, as I said kind of previously, I mean, I always... You know, when I began my journalism career, even before that, I always wanted to cover soccer on a full-time basis because it's it's what I'm incredibly passionate about since I was a kid. So, you know, when Sportsnet approached me in 2011, I was working at the CBC and I was, you know, I was covering soccer, but I was doing other things as well. It wasn't exclusively soccer. So when Sportsnet said, well, you know, we'd like to, you know, hire you as our full-time chief soccer reporter and oversee, wow. you know, our soccer coverage. Uh, you know, my eyes opened up pretty wide because that's what I had been waiting for for a long time. And so it was, um, yeah, very much a dream job. And, you know, I have to give a lot of credit to Sportsnet because, um, you know, they let me get on with the job without too much interference, right? I mean, there was some sort of oversight, but they showed a great deal of trust in me to sort of do my thing and really, um, you know, just sort of shape the coverage of, of the game on their website. So that was I'll always be eternally grateful for that. Um, you know, when I left in, in, in 2019, it wasn't my own choice, obviously. It was because of budget cuts, so I was let go. But again, just because of the way they dealt me through the previous, whatever it was, seven or eight years, there was no hard feelings on my part because they always dealt with me with a great deal of, of, of respect. And I'll always be eternally grateful for everything that they did for me. Absolutely. You know, you've been on the TFC beat since since the beginning, right? Since 07. And how how cool i guess i don't know if you felt feel this but how cool is it you know yes you you know unfortunately you you were like well, by a big company in sportsnet but you still had you know the connections and the pedigree to still cover tfc in your own and on your own platform and you know be involved in the maybe pre and post game uh interviews and and questionnaires and stuff like that do you feel some sort of honor or humbleness that you say, well, okay, I'm not with them anymore, but I still get to be a part in, in what I love doing. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, um, you know, covering TFC has been, um, you know, something uh, has been a career highlight for me and something I take a great deal of joy and pleasure in. Um, you know, I was, you could offer me the, you know, the possibility of covering like the Leafs or the Raptors or the Jays. Um, you know, instead, and, and I wouldn't do it. There, there's no other team I want to sort of cover in, in Toronto, but TFC. It's, and it's not because I'm a fan of the club. It's just, for me, it's just one of the best beats because it's such a unique team. It's such a unique product. And, 
I think we have better access to the players than, you know, some of my colleagues do with regards to covering some of the other team sports. And, and I just think there's great stories to tell. So um, that's why I've always taken a great deal of, uh, of pride and pleasure in covering TFC, because I think it's unlike any other beat in Toronto sports. You know what? You're, you're right about that because a couple, a couple years ago when TFC two was at the Ontario soccer association, the, the Ontario soccer center, I had an opportunity. I did some coverage of the media as well, you know, between two benches and then post game and do, you know, the post game questions uh, live in person there. And it's true. The access for TFC, I feel like, and MLS in general is, is, is a little bit more lenient, let's just say than an NHL NBA or MLB for sure. So that, that, that is true. That's for sure. Um, you know, you know, would you ever want to get back with a big company like a TSN, a Sportsnet, a one, a one soccer, even just get back in that fold and in that mix one day, or are you, you're pretty content, you know, and satisfied with what you're doing and the passion that you're putting your, your, your writing in right now? Um, I'm, yeah, as you said, I mean, I'm, I'm really happy with what I'm doing right now. I mean, it's, I get to be my own boss and set my own hours and do my own thing. Yeah. And it, it's, you know, fantastic. I mean, I, I'm really sort of getting a lot of enjoyment out of you yeah. know, not having to answer to anyone. So that's fantastic. Um, but at the same time, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I wouldn't rule out the possibility of going to sports and I'm still doing some freelance writing for them now on a pretty regular basis. So I have that relationship with, with them and, you know, I, I mean, I know a lot of people at one soccer at TSN. So, you know, it might be something I explore in, in sometime in the future. And if, you know, those companies ever reached out to me and they wanted to have a discussion, it certainly would be something I'd be minimal to, to doing. But uh, as for now, like I said, I'm just, I'm over the moon and ecstatic with what I'm doing. Absolutely. Well, I had Kristen Jack on former uh, TSN TFC analyst reporter too on the show. And, you know, obviously one soccer approached him and now he's with one soccer. When I had him on, he, he didn't know where he was going yet. Cause it was in the mix, but same for you, right? It's, it's, if the opportunities are, you know, are arising and they're coming up, you know, maybe it's a, it's a discussion, right? And then and, and you'll never know for sure. Um, let's, let's, let's move on a little bit to, to Toronto FC in itself, John. And, and obviously, you know, you, you cover Canadian men's national team, women's national team, and a bit of CPL as well, but your main focus, let's be honest, is Toronto FC, right? Um, and it's, it's all about TFC. And last game, I believe I even heard you on the, you know, on the post game, you know, asking a question on the post game, uh, press conferences with the teams, with the players and the and the staff members, and you know you see this 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 change that Toronto FC. I mean, from my T-shirt here, I have all the historic things at the back of the uh, at the at the back of the T-shirt, right on what they did, the treble season. Right? Can they? Very simple question, and before diving in more deeply, but can they get back to that? When do you think they could get back to that? Because in my opinion, I'd look at the starting 11 on what it could be without Gold Cup, uh, without injuries, right? Just a big starting 11, an MLS Cup final starting 11. Biased or not from me or from you, I think TFC could be there. But that's just my opinion. What do you think? Um, I think they've dug themselves an enormous hole from which they have to climb out of. Yeah. Um, and they're about to lose, you know, five players for Gold Cup duty over the next month. You know, uh, the loss of Jonathan Osario and Richie Larea and Kamara Lawrence, I would suggest, are, are, and Ayo Akinola are pretty big blows. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, when you look at it realistically, you figure that they're going to have to, you know, reach, you know, 40 points, at least, at the very least, to get into the playoffs. Yeah. Um, 
that's a tall order with yeah. where they are right now. I mean, that's a very big lift, a very big ask. And, you know, I, I appreciate that the game against New England was, you know, much needed three points and, and the team looked far more better under um, Javier Perez than it did under Chris Armas. But, you know, I really legitimately can't see how they can make up this ground. I think the season is too far gone to go on some kind of magical run to get them into the playoff race. Now, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I think they certainly have the talent to, to do it, to turn this around. But I just wonder if there's even enough time, and which sounds kind of crazy because there's, what, 22, 23 games left in the yeah. season. But when you think about it realistically, they're going to probably have to win, you know, 11, 12 of those games to have a shot. Yeah. You know, I'm not convinced that they can do it. Absolutely. Um, and obviously the Chris Armas firing, you know, came to really no one's surprise after a 7-1 thumping last weekend. Uh, didn't look pretty. Didn't look good. You know, Michael Bradley a couple times this season said, I'm sorry. Like, I'm sorry to everyone. And like, you know, professional players, like, yeah, you could say they have to do that. But I mean, they kind of don't have to say that. They can just say, you know, you know, we're trying to turn it around. We're trying to get it together. But like, you know, pleading to the fan base that like, we're sorry. I'm sorry that this is happening. And then he goes on saying, well, Chris Armas, he didn't really have a chance from the beginning. Uh, to no faults of his own. What what did that mean for your, in, in your perspective? Like, was, should he basically never gotten hired from the beginning? Well, when, when he was asked that, uh, you know, he, he prefaced that, but I mean, the, the part that came before that, he was talking about, you know, how the club has been in a tough way the past 18 months, even with Greg Vanny, just because of the COVID situation and not being based in Toronto and, you know, being, having to play all their games, essentially, you know, in the United States, they haven't played a home game in, in you know, over a year now or whatever it is. So it was in reference to that, how that, you know, being away from home and, and the COVID situation and all the stuff that has gone on behind the scenes has really played a part in, you know, putting this club behind the eight ball to begin with. Um, so that's what essentially he was, he was talking about. That said, um, I think it's pretty clear that Chris Armour shouldn't have been hired in the first place. Um, and, you know, I, I never quite understood you know, what the rationale was behind him sort of changing the tactical approach of the club in such a big way, taking it from, you know, a deliberate possession-based style under, under Vanny to playing a more high-press, high-energy system under, under Chris Armas. Um, it didn't surprise me that he wanted to play because that's the way New York Red Bulls played when he was coach and when Ali Curtis was there as the GM. So, but still, it, it, it never sort of made sense to me why you would sort of it's it's it came across to me as finding a solution to a problem that wasn't there and i do think you know that you know so that was sort of bad enough but then you know i think ali curtis and, and bill manning bear some responsibility here because they knew full well that this was what he wanted to do because he would have outlined his tactical vision in the interview process when he was being you know a, uh, considered as a candidate for the job but then they didn't sort of go out and kind of give him the pieces to pull this off. I mean, this was still a team built in the Vanny mode, built to play, you know, the style of play that Greg sort of endorsed, not one to play the way that Chris Armas was. So I think, you know, in, in that sense, he was kind of doomed to begin with from the start. Although, as I said, I mean, yeah, why they would have changed styles to, to play this sort of high pressing sort of system is beyond me. I never quite understood the reason behind that. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 you know, I, I seen it, I saw it from afar. I mean, I used to be a TFC season ticket holder. I mean, and then I have a few people and I, I know a few people within the organization, just, you know, behind the scenes type of people. And they were talking about the same thing. We don't know because he was playing one system, that system in New York and kind of that's how he kind of got fired because it didn't, they didn't really work out at the end in a way. And then he came here. So it was definitely, you know, the TFC social media was, was up in the air, right. To say why, like, why, 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 why it, you know, I heard, I saw some reports too. Would it be a dream coach Terry Henry for TFC and then bring Mario Balotelli and as a striker, imagine that, <laughs> imagine that. I don't, I don't know if that would work. Hey, eh, John. Yeah. That doesn't sort of actually scream stability to me. No. <laughs> That's something Toronto could use a bit, you know, a bit right now. No, not at all. Definitely not Mario Balotelli. He's going to Turkey now. So he's, uh, he, he's been everywhere, let's just say. Um, the Josie Altidore thing, John, uh, obviously internal stuff. People are saying now he had stuff with Chris Armas and under Javier Perez, he might come back and he's posting again on social media, whatever the heck that means, right? But was there an issue, as much as you can say, as much as you even know, was there an issue with Altidore and a few players, Altidore and Chris Armas? And is he going to be sold? Is he going to be back in the fold? What, what have you been hearing? Well, I think it was, the, it was the issue wasn't, you know, Josie against the players. I think it was just, you know, Josie against Armas, um, you know, for whatever reason, mm-hmm. obviously he didn't like being subbed out of that sort of that game in May against Orlando and let Chris know about it. And, you know, I, uh, I don't, I, it sounds to me like it could have been, the whole situation could have been handled much better and that, you know, I, I do wonder had if this simple, if this sort of would have blown up as big as it had been, had, you know, Greg Vanny been at the helm. Um, so I do think, you know, as I said, I, I wonder how much, you know, Chris Armas could have avoided this thing had if he handled it a little bit better. As far as his future is concerned, um, you know, I do think there is a pathway here for, for Josie to return. Yeah. It seemed like when, you know, he was being exiled by TFC, you know, with Armas in tow, that that was the issue, you know, the problem between the two was was going to lead to his exit, and they were working really hard to figure something out, whether that's sort of trade him or sell him on. Um, now with Chris gone, it does seem like the possibility is there that he could return, and I, you know, I think it would be a pretty smooth transition because, you know, Josie is well respected and well liked by you know his teammates. He's seen as a he's viewed as a team leader. He's someone who has you know really sacrificed and given a lot to the cause since coming to Toronto. Um, and I think he's, I think he's well sort of respected and adored by the fan base as well. I mean, I, I appreciate that, you know, he's missed some time over the last couple of seasons due to injury problems, but when you take his sort of total time, take his time at TFC in total and look at it in that way, you know, he's been one of the, not only one of the best, but most influential players in TFC history. So um, it wouldn't surprise me at all if, if there's some way that he, you know, remains at TFC and, you know, he starts, he features for Javier Perez in the, in the not so distant future. But see, then there's also a narrative going around that, like, you know, how some, some players times for teams are up, right. Or coaches are, you know, their time is up after so many years and, you know, the injury bug with Josie Altador, like, it, it, could you see that, that just, you know, coming into play again and maybe getting the chance or getting injured or, Altidore's time up with the club? Sure. I mean, that's a possibility. I mean, there's no question, as I said, that he has had sort of injury issues and problems staying, 
you know, fit and healthy the last few years. Uh, and, and Toronto FC might sort of like view that as, you know, this is our opportunity to move him on. Um, I think there are a couple of problems here though. One is they simply can't buy out his contract in season because if they do that, they don't get any salary cap space. And so there's no incentive for them to just simply release him and buy him out of his contract. If they want to do that, you know, in the winter, when the season is over, then they get the cap space. That would be one thing. Yeah. But I think they view him as an asset, someone that if they do want to move him on, whether it's via trade or, you know, a transfer, they can get something for him. But I do wonder how much, you know, how a, this sort of tete-a-tete with Armas has, sort of poison the waters, so to speak, because how willing is a club going to be, you know, willing to spend or bring him in by a trade, knowing that they might have the, the sense that, you know, there's some sort of, you know, attitude issues there because, you know, he got into this sort of uh, feud with Armas and B again, his injury issues the last couple of years. I mean, how willing are they going to be to take on a striker who is the wrong side of 30, who has had injury issues at such a high, you know, wage. Um, so I appreciate that, you know, he might want to go or Toronto FC might see value in moving him on, but I think they're going to have a difficult time moving him on just for those, you know, reasons. The, you know, the big question is, especially as an Italian Canadian, for me, did TFC, in your opinion, mess up when they let Sebastian Jovinko go? Well, look, I mean, (laughs) obviously, you, you want to keep the, you know, the best player in the league and like the, their all-time leading scorer. But uh, by all accounts, uh, you know, he wanted to leave. I don't think this was a matter of, I, you know, I, there, was, there, was, there was some blame on both parts, certainly. I think, again, they probably could have done a little bit more to, to make, to have him, you know, retain his services. But at the end of the day, you know, Seba wanted to let go. And, you know, full credit to him. I mean, if you wanted to cash in for a huge, you know, mega payday in Saudi Arabia, players' careers are increasingly short and they got to earn what they can. And if that's what he wanted to do, then, you know, God bless him. I don't think anyone sort of bears him any ill will. Um, but I don't think there's any question. I mean, that was, you know, a big loss for Toronto just because he was such a, you know, hugely influential player for them for so long. It's one of those things where, for example, like the Leafs, right, with Marner, Matthews, Nylander, Tavares, like pay the big boys and get them to stay. Why didn't TFC dish out the money or MLSE dish out the money and say, Seba, Sebastian Jovenko, Seba wants this. We're going to give him this because he's our guy. Like, I know he has a house in even in Oakville in the offseason right now. Like, he loves this place. And, surpri- and I'll be honest, surprisingly, John, because let me tell you, like a Jermaine Defoe, he hated it, right? So, you know, he absolutely adores this place for whatever reason. And it's a good thing for us because people choose the Miami, the LA Galaxy, the LAFC, right? Those places to just live out there and, and stay out there in the Miami USA life. But he chose Toronto. He chose Canada. Why didn't TFC just say, here you go, obviously within reason. And Well, and- I, I think that's it. I think what they viewed as, what Seba viewed as within reason MLS, he didn't view it as within reason. Oh, okay. It was, you know, pretty substantial pay raise. And again, this is no disrespect to Seba, but he, he, this wasn't some 25-year-old player or whatever he was when he came to Toronto. I mean, again, he was in his 30s. So I think the idea of paying him uh, that kind of money when he's 
you know, probably this is, would have been his last contract and he's the wrong side of 30. Um, they weren't willing to do that. It's, it would have set a dangerous precedent because then what's to stop other players um, from yeah. doing the same. And it's, you know, as I said, I just think they were, it was, you know, they were very far apart on money and, you know, it was just, it wasn't going to happen for that. I think we need to bring him back, John. I think we need to bring him back. One, one or two year deal after the Saudi Arabia contract, right? I mean, for, for I mean, he, he will take less money now. I mean, you would, you would hope, right? You would hope, but who knows? Uh, Victor Vasquez came back and went to LA Galaxy with Greg Vanny, right? So, you know, I mean, he also didn't like it in Qatar, but that's, that's, that's another story over there. Um, finally, John, I want to touch upon the, the women's and the men's programs um, quickly here. For the women's first, you know, they have the Olympics coming up. They have a pretty, you know, good team. They have a, they have a deep team. They got some depth. Uh, Christine Sinclair is clearly leading the charge still over there. Um, if her time is coming up shortly, it might be. Um, what do you expect them to do in, in this upcoming Summer Olympics? Second biggest tournament, in my opinion, in women's football. They throw everything in the kitchen sink in the Olympic tournament, other than the uh, FIFA Women's World Cup, of course, every four years. You expect them to do some damage in the Olympics in Tokyo? Uh, I expect them to contend for a medal. Uh, whether they can actually win a medal is, is another matter entirely i mean i think as great as this team is defensively and it's a sound defensive unit when you're talking about players the caliber of kadisha buchanan and shalina zadorsky who have formed a really good pair in the center of defense and then fullbacks like you know ashley lawrence who i think is one of the best you know fullbacks in the women's game and so they are a tight defensive unit i mean they don't give away many goals i think they've got four clean sheets in seven games this year so that bodes well at the same time the attack is lacking um, they've also been shut out four times this year in seven games and Christine Sinclair is on, I think it's like a nine game scoring drought, something like that. And, you know, we've been saying for years that other players have to step up and really sort of lessen the goal scoring burden that rests on her shoulders. And no one has really done that. And so I really wonder where the goals are going to come from, um, you know, at this tournament, I think if Canada is going to win, uh, sort of get a chance at reaching the, the medal podium, then it's going to be on the strength of its defense, not on its attack. You know, the defense is really going to sort of be the key. And I'm not sure that'll be enough to win a medal, but, you know, we'll see. Absolutely. We'll see. And then, you know, there's questions about their goalie, their goalkeeper situation too. Like, is Stephanie LeBay the real deal? And that's what I've been noticing on, on social media and stuff like that. But, you know, the, the attack, they got to score, right? They got to score. So we'll see if that comes to fruition with Janine Becky or, you know, Nichelle Prince and Christine Sinclair trying to get Adriana Leon. You know, they, they got to put the, the ball in the net. It's as simple as that because, you know, they got a decent group. And now, you know, you got to try to get out of that, right? That's the thing. For the Gold Cup, for the Canadian men's national team, um, so much optimism is around this team right now. And I guess that's a good thing, but I think it also could be a bad thing because now the expectation level is high again or higher than what it's used to being with this Canadian men's national team. They have Martinique, Haiti, and obviously USA in their group in the Gold Cup. Top two move on, if I'm not mistaken, um, with four groups, Group A to D. What are their chances? They don't have Atipa Hutchinson, Scott Arfield, Jonathan David, and if I'm not mistaken, one more higher yeah, caliber. 
Milan Borian is missing. Milan Borian, their goalie, right? I knew I said it yesterday and I missed one. So there's your four higher quality class or got, you know, higher class guys in bigger leagues, not there. Especially Jonathan David at this time of, of the style of play. Can Canada get out of that group? Can they really contend for this Gold Cup, even though their likes of Jamaica, USA, Mexico, Costa Rica, Honduras, Panama are in the tournament? I think so. I mean, uh, I note that, you know, all those absences that you mentioned and, you know, they're not insignificant, but when you look at it, it's still a very strong side when you're talking about players, you know, the caliber of Alfonso Davies and Kyle Lahren who were coming off, you know, great individual seasons at Bayern Munich and Besiktas and, you know, a lot of the MLS players, whether it's, you know, Jonathan Asario or Alistair Johnston of Nashville FC, Nashville SC or Mark Anthony Kay, who I think is just, you know, dynamic player. I think he's, you know, fantastic. So I think there is enough talent and depth there to definitely get out of the group and go on a run at this tournament. Um, you know, whether they can or not is, is another thing because, you know, they haven't really been tested in a long time. Um, when you look at John Herdman's reign, there's only been one game that they won against a higher ranked opponent or what I would consider a top tier team in CONCACAF. And that was when they beat the United States at home, you know, in 2019. And then two weeks later, they went down to Florida and got, you know, beat pretty, you know, handily by the Americans. Um, you know, when they competed at the 2019 Gold Cup, they lost to Mexico and they lost to Haiti. Um, and when you look at all their games this year, it's against Minnows. It's against Aruba and the Cayman Islands and Dominica. It's not against anyone that I would consider, you know, a CONCACAF heavyweight. So they haven't shown, they haven't, they haven't had the chance to play that many top tier games in the last two or three years, but when they did, they haven't all done that well. This is going to be a serious test for them. I think it's going to be, give us a good barometer of just how good this Canadian team is and where they stand. And it might give us some, some insight into how the team is, you know, going to move forward with, you know, the, the world cup qualifiers, you know, resuming in, in September. So I think it's a big test for Canada. I like the fact that, you know, John has fielded, you know, a pretty strong side, because there was some sort of belief that, you know, maybe he might field an experimental team and give a lot of young players the chance, but he's clearly going for it, which I think is good. I mean, I think it's, you know, there should be expectations on this team. There should be expectations that it can compete and do well and, and, you know, go for it. And so I think that's positive. And, you know, as I said, I think it just bodes well for, you know, the World Cup qualifiers in September because it allows the team to stay together a bit more and build some chemistry. So, uh, it's going to be an interesting tournament for Canada, I think. I think they're just lucky that Bayern Munich is letting Alfonso Davies uh, take part, to be completely honest. I mean, you already lost Jonathan David. Imagine losing Davies to, you know, that, that attack, that flank, right, um, as well. But will the narrative come into play, John, if, you know, they don't do well or, or, or they don't even get out of the group or maybe bail out right after the group stage? You didn't have these four or five bigger guys there. Like, will that be a narrative or never mind the excuses? You still got a pretty good team. You got good striker depth in Lucas Cavallini, who I had on my show with Kyle Lahren as well. Like, th there's guys there they, that can still get the job done. Yeah, I don't think that narrative will come into place. And if it does, then I think it'll be, you know, completely mis misguided and false because there is enough talent there. I mean, I appreciate that Jonathan David has, you know, has been lights out for Canada and is, is you know, could be like the leading scorer for, for, for the national program within, you know, you know, eventually it's going to happen just because he's on a tear, but 
um, this idea that they're missing key guys um, and that sort of somewhat excuse a poor performance in the Gold Cup, you know, I wouldn't buy that. Again, there's more than enough talent there and more than enough depth that they should be able to compete. Well, they're, they're starting keeper too, right? So let's hope it's not that narrative, you know, because it might come into play. Um, but I, I think, I think it, you know, like I said, the optimism looks good. I mean, I'm watching qualifiers like crazy now, right? On this TV here against Haiti and against all these other, you know, let's just say minnows in, in, in the CONCACAF uh, structure. But it's good to see that John Herdman, although it was a shock leaving the women's program, to be honest, a few years ago, in my opinion, but took over this men's team and it just looks better. Um, they're going to be in a World Cup no matter what. It seems like in 2026, but just to see them progressing decently will be all right. I mean, an Italy versus Canada World Cup game in Toronto, if that's ever happens, I'm buying tickets. I'm buying a whole box right away. That's for sure. So we'll see what happens. Um, listen, John, I really do appreciate coming on. You know, guys like yourself, uh, players, media people. I mean, I've had a lot of people that I reached out to that few that said no, but a lot of people that said, yeah, and they're, you know, within their busy schedule. And I guess it just bodes to the professionalism and the respect level of guys that are at your level, women and uh, men and uh, female, right. Um, giving myself an opportunity because I'd want to come up in the ranks um, in the hockey, soccer, basketball world. And I'm doing it now. What I love play by play uh, with hockey in junior eight, but keep on getting up and keep on having my own podcast and stuff like that. So I truly do appreciate you coming on. It means a lot and uh, best of luck in the future. And uh, let's go TFC and Forza Italia, by the way, as well. Yeah. Oh, my pleasure. I was happy to come on and best of luck to you in your, in your future. Absolutely. Absolutely. Quick prediction, Italy or England, who you got? <laughs> uh, I think England is going to win one, nothing uh, just because I think, you know, home field advantage is going to be huge. And, no. you know, I do like the way England is playing. Don't get me wrong. I think they've been, you know, pretty solid throughout this tournament so i think it'll i think they'll just eke it out i'm gonna go 2-1 italy because i can't go against my italians i can't do it, Fair I can't do it. <laughs> no but uh like i said i appreciate you coming on it does it does mean a lot and best of luck obviously moving uh moving forward um listen everybody this is john molinaro founder of tfc republic um covering all tfc all canada soccer really in general i'm nicholas fiore the host of mamma mia this is Fire Talk and play-by-play -play broadcaster for the Oakville Blades. Follow on all social media platforms. Listen on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Watch on YouTube. This was episode number 43 and footy edition number six of Mamma Mia. This is Fire Talk. Stay safe, everybody, and Mamma Mia. Lopez. Lopez turns it over. And now Cavallini with it. Cavallini finds Baker. Albanese comes out. Baker gets to it first. Around the keeper and in the back of the net. Blows the whistle. The captain, Dylan Carrero, for Woodbridge. A penalty kick, steps up, and takes it neatly so with a great, brilliant penalty kick strike into the corner. The ref blows the whistle. Whiteman steps forward, looking, and right down the middle with the strike there and the penalty kick in the 19th minute. Anything coming, now a chance for Jason Mills. He comes in, the shot on goal. Off the woodwork again, the rebound comes out. The Mills again, shot scores! Oh my word, number 11 with the finish, and that's Brandon Mills. Oakville looking to play long instead of building up. It's going to favor them off the second ball. A chance for the Blue Devils. Can they get anything on goal? Goes back outside looking for the offside call. It's not. Now cross back in, back door, it's a goal! And the Blue Devils are on the door first.
pushed back with good defensive play from North Mississauga, and they steal it, and now look at the counter. Can the Panthers go? It's 4v4. Good pace. Potello plays on the far side. They stay on side. North Miss, an opportunity. They come on the break with a shot. In the back of the net it goes, and North Miss have one back. Continues with a North Mississauga free kick in midfield. An opportunity here. Shot comes in, in the back of the net it goes. Oh, my word, what a strike. Now back kicked up in the air, one with the header. Placed down, McNamara has the opportunity, and in the back of the net it goes. Corner kicking off for Oakville. It's a dangerous one, and in the back of the net again, and it's McNamara. That was Mamma Mia. This is Fire Talk Footy Edition with Nicholas Fiore. Thank you for watching and listening, and stay tuned for the next episode.